Lord be with you. Let us pray. Dear Jesus, as we come to these just such important passages, such important events in your life, in your last 24 hours, last 18 hours before your death, we just pray, God, that you would give us a sense of why they matter. Uh, Their truth, but their relevance. Uh, Teach us, Lord, to love you all the more because of what you have given to us in yourself and in your sacrifice. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. Well, week two of the Passion of Our Lord. It's Thursday night. We left last week. Jesus and the disciples, uh, they were reclined at the table, the Passover meal, and they're eating. And Jesus, if you remember, if you're with us, Jesus predicts, and that was uh, the first section of um, chapter 26, Jesus predicted, one of you will betray me. And they all respond, is it I, Lord? Which is uh, a good translation, but what they meant, what, the way we would say what they meant is, it's not me, is it? It's not me, is it? So it's this sort of um, covering oneself rather than being like, oh my gosh, Jesus, are you, somebody's going to betray you? Like, I mean, they're not so concerned. Uh, they're not, they don't seem to be as concerned for Jesus as they are concerned for themselves, which is sort of the, the human problem, right? That's kind of kind of what we all uh, deal with. And then in verse 25, Judas Iscariot says, Is it I, Rabbi? In other words, it's not me, is it, Rabbi? But he says, Is it I, Rabbi? And Jesus responds, You have said so. That's the verse preceding our passage. And what I want you to see is that you go from that, Judas, you have the Lord's Supper, and then you have Peter. And Jesus predicts that Peter will deny Next week, we'll have, after, right after Peter's, um, the prediction of, of the denial, we'll have Gethsemane. And then um, Judas with the mob. Actually, Gethsemane's today. Gethsemane's today. So you have Judas, Lord's Supper, Peter, Gethsemane. Judas comes with the mob. Caiaphas in the council. Peter denies three times. Judas What you have is Judas, and then Jesus forging the new covenant, and then Peter, and then Jesus forging the new covenant, and then Judas, and then Jesus forging the new covenant, and then Peter. Do you see what's happening? You have Judas and Peter back and forth, with Jesus forging the new covenant through His supper, through uh, His uh, obedience in the garden, through uh, the betrayal, through the, uh, the trial, and ultimately to the cross. And you have the villain of the early church, Judas. You have the hero of the early church, Peter. And they're kind of in the same boat. Luke doesn't really do that, but Mark does. Mark and Matthew go back and forth. Judas and Peter. I just want you to notice that as we go through these next weeks, because I think it's a really important declaration, proclamation, about who Jesus is for and what sort of sinner Jesus is dying for. 
which is to say, all of them. Okay? So they've been eating the Passover meal. We're going to um, take a look first at Exodus chapter 12. So Katie, you're with us on, online. Exodus chapter 12, verses 1 through 13. So you can go back in your Bible to that. We've got it printed out. And, and what we have is the Passover. This is the original Passover of the Lord. The Lord said to Moses and to Aaron in the land of Egypt, this month shall be for you the beginning of months. In other words, this is a whole new start. This is, this is going to be your New Year's because this, well, you're going to judge your time by this event that is about to happen. It should be the first month of the year for you. Tell all of the congregation of Israel that on the tenth day of this month, every man shall take a lamb according to their father's houses, uh, a lamb for a household. If the household is too small for a lamb, that he and his nearest neighbor shall take according to the number of persons. In other words, I don't care if you just, you know, you share it with somebody, just take a lamb. Uh, and um, your lamb shall be perfect, right? Without blemish. A male, a year old. You may take it from the sheep or the goats, and you shall find, uh, and you shall keep it until the fourth day of this month. So you're going to, four days, you're going to take it into your house, you're going to treat it like a pet. You're going to get to know this animal. Uh, your kids are going to play with the animal. And then, when the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel shall kill their lambs at twilight. So this little lamb that you've gotten to know is going to die. And then they shall take some of the blood and put it on the two doorposts and the lintel. So the sides and the top of the door, put it the blood of the lamb, in the houses in which they eat the lamb. And they shall eat the flesh that night, roasted on the fire with unleavened bread and bitter herbs, and they shall eat it. Do not eat any of it raw or boiled in water, roasted. Its head with its uh, legs, its inner parts, and you shall let none of it remain until the morning. Anything that remains until the morning you shall burn up. In this manner you shall eat it, with your belt fastened, your sandals on your feet, your staff in your hand, you shall eat it in haste. In other words, you're eating it on the run, right? You're eating it, you're ready to go. It is the Lord's Passover. Four, and here's, here's the whole deal of the Passover. And this is, remember, that we're reading this because this is what Jesus and his disciples are remembering, and everyone around them, this is what the Passover still represents. If you have a Seder meal or you eat uh, the Passover with some Jewish friends of yours, this is what they're remembering. For I will pass through the land of Egypt that night, and I will strike all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast, and on all the gods of Egypt I will execute judgments. I am the Lord. The blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you. And no plague, no judgment, will befall you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. So Passover, that first Passover, it sounds, I mean, it sounds brutal to us. We don't, it's not our favorite aspect of God, right? That He's going he's gonna to kill the firstborn of Egypt. And in fact, all the other plagues, this is the tenth plague, and all the other plagues, Israel has been spared. The locusts didn't come where the Israelites were. They just came to where the Egyptians were. But uniquely, the Israelites have to prepare themselves for this particular plague. 
because it is a mini judgment day. Uh, it is easy to find places in the Old Testament where the firstborn are basically an offering to the Lord. They're set apart. They're not sacrificed necessarily, but they belong to the Lord. They could be sacrificed by their life, but they are uh, given unto the Lord as a sort of first fruits. First, firstborn children, firstborn animals, all, all of that's given unto the Lord. And the people of Israel, have, I mean the people of Egypt, have sinned against, particularly Pharaoh as the leader, have sinned against the Lord by not letting the people go. And so God is, is in this sort of mano y mano uh, with Pharaoh. And he's going to win. God's going to win. And he's going to do it by totally demoralizing the people. But Israel, the, the thing about this judgment of sin is that it is actually the people of Israel are going to have to protect themselves too. But God, and here's the whole deal with the Passover, and it's critical for, you, for us as we understand the Lord's Supper, which we're going to get to in just a minute. But God is providing His people a means by which they escape His judgment. And so they take the lamb, and they kill the lamb, and they take the blood, and they put the blood on the doorpost, and they consume the lamb into the, so it becomes a part of who they are. And when God sees the blood, He withholds His judgment. And every firstborn son in Israel, looks at the lamb, or <laughs> remembers the lamb that they just ate, and says, that lamb died in my place. That lamb died so I don't have to die. That lamb paid the price for the sin of my family so that I don't have to. The lamb and the lamb's blood are the Lord's provision for His people to escape His judgment. So that's the Passover, and that's what they're remembering when they come to the meal. The disciples and Jesus and all good Jews who are having the Passover meal. Questions about that before we get into the passage itself? Yes? Historically, wasn't it that not necessarily the person that committed the crime or sin was punished, but the eldest son? And that's why he would have to pay the price if it weren't for Jesus. I think your question is, did the eldest son have to pay the price for the sins of others? I don't think exactly that way. It was just, but like, for instance, when Isaac, when God said, okay, Abraham, sacrifice Isaac. I mean, all these things that Abraham is like, you know, he's so mischievous, he's going around. But when God says, give me Isaac, he says, okay. And he gets loads up the donkey and heads to Mount Moriah, right? And why is that? Because he understood that the firstborn is an offering unto the Lord. Now, it was also understood liturgically, and I'm giving you things that I know sort of about vaguely. All right, so I, I just want to have that little uh, caveat. But um, as I understand it, it was understood that the, this child belongs to the Lord, not that the Lord was going to require, actually require his life. Like that he could, but the Lord is merciful and gracious. So that's so. There's there's not a the Lord, There is no evidence anywhere in Scripture that our God condoned child sacrifice. Okay, but this is a sort of mini, mini judgment day. Um, 
I should say, and if you if you use if you look at this and say, well, he sort of did, um, the child sacrifice from his own people to be pleased for him. There are times when they do because they're following other gods, and they say, oh, well, those gods require child sacrifice. We'll do that for our god, and God is furious about it. Just as another evidence for how they've run away from God. So God is not requiring that of His people. Okay. Yes. The question is: Is it firstborn sons only, or firstborn children? And I, this says the firstborn, but I think it's the firstborn sons. So I think that's, I, I don't think so. Yes, Linda. It is the firstborn sons. Sons. Yes. And what they would do with that's why Jesus and Mary was going to the temple with Mary and Joseph is that you kind of because they did belong to the Lord, what you did was you made the Lord an offering in place and because that son was was the Lord's for his service. Yes, so that's a great point. So when you see Mary and Joseph taking Jesus to the temple and making an offering on his behalf, was, he was the firstborn son. So that was he was consecrated unto the Lord. Alright? Okay. Verse 26, chapter 6. Now as they were eating, Jesus took bread, and after blessing it, broke it, and gave it to His disciples and said, Take, eat, this is My body. This is the words of institution. This is what we say in the Lord's Supper every, in the Eucharist every week. And He took a cup, and when He had given thanks, He gave it to them, saying, Drink of it, all of you, for this is My blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. This is where we get the words. And for those of, who count these sort of things, we, it could not be the body and blood of Jesus unto us if these words were not spoken over it. The words of institution are what become... Uh, well, it's not transubstantiated, but, but we might understand it as sort of consubstantiated. Um, it's not just a memorial. We don't have, I mean, I remember in college one time I was with my friends and somebody got grape juice and crackers and we just said, this is like, you, this is like the Lord's Supper. And it was like the Lord's Supper. We just remembered what, God, what Jesus did for us. But when we are up here and God has taken His ministers that He has set apart to call these things holy, there's nothing magic in my hands or anything like that, but it's just we understand that with the remembrance of the Lord's words and the calling down of His Holy Spirit, these become unto us by faith the body and blood of Jesus. Right? So it's a sacrament. What is, um, what is a sacrament? Do you remember from your, from your um, confirmation class? The definition of a sacrament? Yes, that's right. An outward and visible sign of an inward and spiritual grace. You should teach confirmation <laughs> to the youth. Uh, yes. An outward and visible sign. So the outward and visible sign in communion is the bread and the wine. The outward and visible sign in baptism is the water and then the oil on, on, their, um, on their forehead. The, uh, but the inward gra- what is the inward grace of the Lord's Supper? The presence of Jesus. The presence of Jesus. Finish the sentence. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> That's enough for me. That's enough for you. 
Where? Where is the presence? Oh, in us, because we've taken it. Yes, in the bread and wine, but not. that's not the miracle. The miracle is that He's in us, right? That we take the bread and the wine, the body and blood, unto us, as He in us and we in Him, right? So we're, it is, we're ingesting Him. Like He becomes, as the food that you eat becomes a part of who you are, um, then so Jesus is part of who you are. Yes, Felix. Uh, in trying to explain this to me uh, some time ago, uh, a preacher told me the substance of the wine and the bread don't change, but the meaning has changed. Instead of being wine and bread, Noah, it is now the body and blood. Right. So the, not, the substance doesn't change, but the meaning changes. For instance, I mean, a good, good way to illustrate that is that we go into the tabernacle and we pull out the consecrated bread that's left over, right? And put it right next to bread that has not yet been consecrated. You could not tell the difference by looking at it. But we as a church reserve the consecrated bread as special, as holy as to be treated differently because we've asked the Lord's blessing upon it. And then we do that with the unconsecrated bread. We ask His blessing upon it. It becomes consecrated bread and they're the same. Now, I've said before, I think that sort of my piety and not everybody believes exactly what I believe and they don't need to. We're Anglicans. But the, um, but the, you have to believe it in order for it to be the bread and the body and blood. Because if you drink all the consecrated wine you can drink till you get drunk, and you can, um, it's not the blood of Christ if you don't believe it is. It, faith must be an element. And that's, isn't that what you said we're different from the Catholics? Well, the Catholics would say that it's, it, it doesn't matter uh, what you believe about it. It is the body and blood of Christ. And, and there's certainly some Episcopalians who would make the same argument. Um, it has to be rightly received. It has to be rightly received. The way I was taught about it, and that's just my seminary, but it was that, that the Holy Spirit must be present and faith must be present. So in a Catholic church, the Holy Spirit is present is the way they understand anyway. The Holy Spirit is present and it doesn't matter what you believe about it, it is. Right? In the Baptist church, your faith is present. It doesn't matter the presence of the Holy Spirit because is it what you believe, right? And we kind of have both. Not kind of. we got to have both. Faith and Spirit. Now, you probably don't have to go very far to find somebody in the Episcopal Church that would articulate it in a pretty different way than that. But that's the way I understand it. And I'm very comfortable with that. So, he, so that's... This is the institution of the Lord's Supper. Remember the context. They are taking, they're eating the meal that talks about the pivotal moment in the history of God's people. This is the beginning of months for you. Like every year, this is New Year's when we are remembering the Passover. And the pivotal moment in the history of God's people is given new meaning in Christ because now He's the Lamb. His body is the bread, His blood is the wine, and the doorposts and the lentils are your hearts. And God still says, when I see the blood, 
of the Lamb, I will pass over you, and no judgment will befall you. Right? No judgment will befall you. Uh, because he's still looking for the blood of the Lamb on the doorposts of our hearts. Any questions or thoughts about the meaning of the meal itself? I just think it's amazing that Jesus takes this moment in, in a sense because it's so repeated and so ingrained in the, in the patterns of the people of Israel. It's a mundane moment. It's important, but it's, you know, it's routine. And He gives it entirely new meaning because He's the Lamb. The final Lamb. And when we look at Him, we can say, that Lamb died in my place. All of us. Now what is extraordinary about this particular meal is He is offering this new covenant. He's the Lamb for all of us that takes away the sin of the world, as John the Baptist said. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. What's extraordinary? Who's there at the meal? The disciples. Name them. Peter, John, John, James, Mark, Matthew, and say it. Judas. This is what, yes, yeah, so I, so I don't really, the, the test is not, do you know the names of the eleven? The point to make is that Judas is there, and Peter's there, and everybody in between. The betrayer, the denier, and all the runaways. So did Judas already know he was going to betray because he's asking the Lord, yet in the next sentence, there he is doing it. It didn't... Yeah, it's like he's, he's kind of feeling Jesus out for does he know what's going on here, and it seems like he does. But he's already said, after the thing with the woman, the, the alabaster jar, that he went and at, to the chief priest and said, what will you give me if I deliver him over to you? So he... Judas knows. One of the other gospels says um, that he that Satan entered into him at that point, and it, I'm not sure if that's. I'd have to go back and look. But the gospel of John, when when he when he leaves, Judas departs. We never actually are, have articulated Matthew that, Jesus, that Judas departs. It would have been when he when when they left the Lord's Supper, and they had to have passed the high priests. Uh, palace to go to the Mount of Olives, Judas would have slipped out. So um, that's when he that's when he would have gone. But in John it says he left and it was night. Like there's this really sort of dark sort of symbolic moment in John where it, and it was night. It's such a very cool for Bible nerds. But um, it's just incredible to me that Judas would have been offered the new covenant. Uh, and, and it's just so complete is the grace of our Lord Jesus that is betray- to His betrayer, to His executors, Lord, forgive them for they know not what they do. He is offering them a way out of condemnation. He is the Lord's provision of a means to escape the Lord's judgment. My mentor, Frank Limehouse, tells a story about uh, a man who waited around for him after the service, you know, we had the receiving line, and 
coming through and he looks up at the guys, he's got tears in his eyes. He says, I'm Frank, you got a minute and and, and Frank said, Actually, no, I I've, I've got to run. Uh but what you know, what what's up? And he says, I'm I'm hooked on porn. And it's it's tear he's just you know, got tears in his eyes. It's tearing my it's tearing my family apart and I can't take communion. Every time I go in go to take communion, I have these lewd thoughts in my in my mind of of, of all these images and I know that I just can't I'm not worthy I, to to come and to take communion. And like that that makes sense. Like we understand that logic, right? And it doesn't have to be porn whatever it is for you. Like we understand the the logic that says uh, I there's a, a, an extraordinary sense if those things are coming to my mind, my downfalls, my sins, my the things I'm that bring me shame that it, they're coming to mind that I know that I'm not worthy. And Frank said, I'm going to tell you two things. The first is Romans 8.1. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And the guy said, no condemnation? That's it. No condemnation. And the second is, when you come to communion, you tell God, that I believe your blood is more powerful to forgive and to heal than my addiction is powerful to corrupt. You tell God, I confess to you, I believe it, that your blood is more powerful to forgive and to heal than my addiction is powerful to corrupt. And you tell the devil who's putting those things in your mind that he can go to hell. And And then you take communion. And I just, like, I've always held that story so close because I just think it's such a, a powerful reminder that, that that's what we're coming to when we come to the Lord's table. I mean, it's our altar call every week, right? I believe it. I in Him and He in me. That His blood was shed for me, His body broken for me, and I am in Christ and Christ is in me. And therefore, I am pure and whole. So whatever it is for you, the blood of Christ is more powerful to forgive and to heal than our sin is to corrupt. Then how come we can't forget those things? Does that mean that almost like that we haven't given it over if we're not forgiving ourselves? Why can't we forget those things? I don't know, Susie. You have to have some obstacle in your life. I mean, <laughs> I mean, I, you're here. I mean, you know, like it doesn't mean that you, you know. For, it doesn't. You're forgiven. It doesn't. You're not. It's it's, it's not extracted a memory from your brain. You know, like I remember things I did in high school. That, I mean, much less two weeks ago that I'm not proud of. You know, like that. I remember them. The question is, are they going to cover, fill me with shame still? And I think if they do, then I'm con- my only job is my job is not to beat me up that I'm still feeling shame. My job, my job is to continually hand it over once again, and to come in faith even when it's hard. Now Peter doesn't quite get it, you know. Like that's we love Peter, <laughs> we love him because he just doesn't always doesn't quite get it. 
And so they, they, you know, they leave and they go out to the Mount of Olives. Judas has, has slipped away because the, the upper room is like, in order to get to the Mount of Olives, you've got to walk right, it's, it's north, or whatever, it's up the hill from, the, um, from Caiaphas' palace. And so they would have had to walk right past it. And the road is still there, the Roman road. That you can, that you don't, they don't let you walk on it anymore, but they, you can see it. And, um, and so they got out of the Mount of Olives, and Jesus said to them, um, you're all going to fall away from me tonight. It's written, because it's written in the Scriptures. God, has, God said it to Zechariah. And, um, and so that's, it's got to come true, right? I'm going to strike the shepherd. In other words, the shepherd's going to get struck by the judgment of God, and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. But, he says, after I'm raised up, I'm going to go before you to Galilee. And Peter says, listen, he doesn't hear the part about resurrection. He just says, look, they might all leave you, but I ain't leaving. I'm in this for the long haul. I'm, I'm going to, I will give my life for you. Uh, Jesus, unless a little girl around the campfire says, uh, do you believe? No, I mean, you know, like it's just... Um, He's, if they all fall away, I will never fall away. And Jesus says, I tell you this very night, before the rooster crows, you'll deny me three times. Three times, Peter. Peter says, nuh-uh. <laughs> Which is a, a rough translation of, uh, even if I must die with you, I will not deny you. And they all said, yeah, 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 me too, me too, me too. So we're going back and forth between Judas and Peter, and Jesus is forging the new covenant. We need to remember that Jesus is being increasingly isolated, right? His aloneness on the cross has got, is the key. He's got to be alone. He can't have people who are with him anymore. He's got to be the scapegoat. He's got to be the, the pariah of, of judgment. And so uh, no one is, not even God the Father. And... Um, and I think the abandonment of the disciples, despite their determination not to abandon him, actually really speaks to the story of our discipleship. Because you can look, we all can look at our own life and think, man, we're determined, I'm, I'm never going to walk away from Jesus, except when I do. You know? We're determined, and then that moment of weakness slips up on us like, like a thief in the night, doesn't it? And we lash out with anger, or we uh, refuse to forgive, or we look at porn, or we are m- moving from enjoying alcohol to using alcohol, or whatever it is. Whatever it is. It slips up on us like a thief in the night. We never even make the connection that we have been determined to follow Jesus, and yet we are walking our own ways. And we are just like these disciples. So Jesus went with them to a place called Gethsemane. Now Gethsemane is, uh, if the place that they've got it now is where it was, then it is at the, basically the bottom of the Mount of Olives, right? The Kidron Valley, the, the creek, coming right back up, it's, it's right there. Jesus went with them to a place called Gethsemane, and he said to his disciples, just sit here, I'm going to go over here and pray. And taking with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, that's James and John, he began to be sorrowful and to be troubled. He said to them, my soul, I mean, just like the, the anticipation that he who has never from the foundation of the world and before that ever been uh, separated from God the Father, he is about to have, be cosmically torn apart from him. 
My soul is, I mean, this is so understated. My soul is very sorrowful even to death. Remain here, watch with me. And so he went a little further and he fell on his face and prayed, saying, My Father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, and this is, this is the disciples' prayer. And this is, I mean, this is Jesus as the ultimate disciple of, of the Father, right? This is the disciples' prayer. Yet not as I will, but as you will. So he got up and he went back to the disciples. He found them asleep. And he said to Peter, Could you not watch with me one hour? Watch and pray that you might not enter into temptation. Spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. And again, for the second time, he went back and prayed. My Father, if this cannot pass unless I drink it, then your will be done. I mean, all of our, I mean, our salvation hung in the balance. I mean, if Jesus is, had run off into the darkness of the night, you and I would not be here today. And He came again and He found them sleeping, for their eyes were heavy. And leaving them, He went and prayed for the third time, saying the same words, so he's just preparing, he's preparing, he's preparing, he's convincing himself, he's just confessing to God that he wants the Father's will to be done. That, you know, he came up with this plan with the Father, and he's not having cold feet, he's just human. He's, so he's fully God and fully human. We see this because he's going to be rent from the Father, torn from the Father. He is, um, we see his humanity. In fact, we are told that he. In one of the other Gospels, he swept blood. Which is medically pretty daggone rare, but I'm told that the stress can actually make blood vessels pop. So, on the, on the pathway down the, mount, the, the, um, the Palm Sunday walk where Jesus rode the donkey, um, the Garden of Gethsemane is right at the bottom of that. And I remember, I mean, the, the, the Palm Sunday walk down, it's probably, it, it felt like about a 45 degree angle. It was probably more like an 8 degree angle. But it, um, it, uh, it was, it's very steep to walk. And, um, and it kind of, I was just so, remember, I was so focused. It was the cobblestone road, and I was just so, and you could see the Temple Mount with the, the, the Islamic temple and uh, with the golden dome and and um, I was just kind of taking it all in and and I wasn't prepared when I came around and saw Gethsemane and in the place where Jesus is said to have sweat his own blood are eight of the oldest olive trees in the world and they are enormous. And just, I mean, rough. Look, I mean, they're so sort of gnarly. And, um, and they weren't likely there when Jesus... It's, like, it's not like they were planted before Jesus swept blood in that, ground, in that soil. But, but it's that soil. And they're humongous. You've never seen, and, they're just, and that day they happened to be cutting, just trimming them back. And so they were leaving. So we've all got olive branches from Gethsemane. Uh, and you know, which is pretty pretty neat. And you go into what's called the Church of All Nations. Uh, or it's called the Church of All Nations, or the Church of the Agony, Basilica of the Agony. And a lot of the different um, churches that this, and I can't remember his name right offhand, but this one architect, 
designed a lot of the Franciscan churches that are the 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 place, and they're only a lot of most of them are about fifty years old. Um, and but this one was so stunning because the the it's, it's big and and it's so quiet. It's packed full of people, so quiet, and the um the stained glass is just purple, like a bruise, like and it just the light come in. It's just, it's just kind of dark and purple and 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 uh and on you know you've seen pictures of jesus praying gethsemane on a rock he's like he's he's kind of up on this rock well the rock is at the altar and you can touch the rock that jesus was said to have prayed prayed on uh when he said not my will but yours be done it i came around that corner and i saw gethsemane and i just began to weep. I mean, it's involuntarily. It was, it was really powerful. It was one of the things I did not expect. All the things I did expect. Oh, I can't wait to see the Sea of Galilee, and I want to teach on the boat. I got to do all those things. It just never, I just, Gethsemane just caught me off guard. It was so wonderful and so awful and, and just so amazing to be in the place that Jesus said, not my will, but yours be done. Instead of running. I mean, he could have run down through the past the city of David and off to who knows where and live to fight another day. He loves you too much for that. That's the ultimate pattern to discipleship. Not my will, uh, but yours be done. And, and it is our example to strive for, but we're going to be the ones who fall asleep, right? In one way or another. But our salvation depends upon the fact that Jesus sought the Father's will above His own unto His very death. And that's why we have Lent. Because He stayed. Because He stayed. And it says, at the very last, He came to His disciples after the third time and said, Sleep and take your rest later on. See, the hour is at hand. And the Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. And so what we'll see next week is this is when the mob comes. Surely he can hear, even as he's saying this to the disciples, he can hear the footsteps of the mob with the pitchforks and whatever it is that they have. So, I kind of live in Lent, and this is my jam. <laughs> like, I, I get so excited because I'm just so profoundly grateful for Jesus and for the sacrifice that He made, and I could just—and if you haven't been and have the chance to go and see it, like it's just—I mean, I'm, I'm right there right now. It's—it's—it's it's, it's amazing, and um, I can't encourage you to go enough. And we will go again uh, before too long. I hope. I hope. Questions or thoughts or comments. Yeah. Just, just on, on the Holy Land visit. I, I look at it this way: that un, 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 unless you go there, or until you go there, it's like watching a black and white TV. And once you go there, it's in the color. Yeah. I mean, I've heard people say that same thing. You know, it's like it's like now the Bible's in color, and and I think there is it really it, it is just so neat. And and in some of the places is not the exact place you know like the upper room is probably a couple hundred yards off you know like it's probably under it's under the monastery over um i mean like just but you're still in that spot 
I mean, it's just, it's just, it really is amazing. Not that you, not that you're getting second best if you're, if you had never been there. Like, I mean, you got what you got, and got, and the Lord is going to be present with you. I'm just saying, if you have a chance to go and you hadn't been, it's worth the expense um, for your faith because it really, really. Yes, Judy. Joe, I think one of the most So, yes, yeah, so the, one of the first pilgrims, real Christian pilgrims to go, uh, was Helen, the mother of Constantine, who went for that purpose of, of serving. And they, you know, when you go uh, in America to a historic site, you want to see it just as it was, untouched, and there's all sorts of laws. And so, but that's not how they did it. And so they, in order to consecrate the place, they built a church on top of it. And, um, and then he, most of Helen's churches got torn down during the, uh, the Ottoman invasions and then the, Con- then, then the Crusades and then the, and, and the Rome, well, the Romans before that, all the different stuff. There's been lots and lots of different iterations. Now, Church of the Nativity, you actually can see Helen's, some of, some of their original work uh, in Bethlehem. But, but yes, there's been, but those, that was the beginning of the preservation of, of these sites. You know, because there's just like any other site, you know, any other piece of land. No, nothing remarkable about that except what happened there. And thankfully, it has been preserved. What I would love to do, it would be neat to have my friend Heidi Kenner, uh, who was actually just the speaker at the clergy conference this past week. And she's a priest and a good friend, but she's also an archaeologist. And she's spent a lot of time in Jerusalem. It would be cool to have her come and, and uh, do a maybe a weekend little uh, explanation of, of some of those very things that you're talking about. What else? I didn't mean to make this sort of a apologetic for uh, pilgrimage. I just... Um, so when are we going? Yeah, well, I don't know when we're going. I've got these other things I'm working on. You want to you plan it? I'll, I'll, I'll go. Yeah. I'm with this correlation in my mind. From the time we talked about you bringing the lamb into the house, making them your pet, and they killed him. Jesus came among you, and we killed him. Yeah, I mean, and he's he's our dear friend, you know, like that. I and mean, we have him resurrected, but he's he's um, he died for our sins. Yeah, I mean, he's close to us. That's why I think that's why Lent is hard, and and Good Friday is particularly hard because he's. I mean, to watch when you. If, for those of us who went and watched Mel Gibson's Passion of the Christ, to watch this character playing Jesus getting absolutely you know, beat, beating the snot out of him, and it's just so painful. I remember just sitting in the theater, weeping, shouting out, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. Because it's just, we love him so much. And yet, that's why Good Friday is good. Because it was the great thing about it is they didn't take his life; he gave it. Well, that's right. I mean, that's what, you know they say he didn't need nails to hand get you know, but his love would have kept him there, which is a little sentimental, but it is um, not 
Anyway. Go to church. Love you guys. Next week we have, um, let me see what we've got. Jesus, the, the arrest of Jesus, Jesus before the council, and Peter afraid of the little girl.